0: Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to The Gospel House. Our mission here at The Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ.
1: Let's jump in. Week 2, we are in James 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to James 2. If you got your phones with you, you can scroll to James 2. And if you don't, it's all going to be up on the screen, so we got you covered. So, the book of James... We've titled this sermon series aptly, and we'll get to talk about the verse today that the sermon series is based on. But it pretty much summarizes the entire book of James. James says, the Holy Spirit says through James, So you say you believe in God, then prove it. Right? That's what James is all about, right? Put your money where your mouth is. Right? It's where the rubber meets the road. Whatever other analogy do you want? James says, you say you believe in God, good, prove it, show me. That's what he's saying throughout the entire book. So last week, week one, James one, we looked at what James said. So you say you believe in God, then do what he says. Right? We've got to be doers of the word. So today, we look at James 2, and James tells us, what does life in the kingdom look like? What does life in God's kingdom look like? And really, if you want to break it down, you could break down the entire Bible as this. The entire Bible. Now, I know we've got some messed up interpretations of the Bible and what it is and what it isn't. Legalism says it's a list of rules to follow, but really, what the Bible does is the Bible shows us. So you say you want to live in God's kingdom. This is what it looks like, and unfortunately, it does that many times by showing us what life in God's kingdom doesn't look like. Right? Right? Because we, and we've talked about this again and again and again. But all the major characters in the Bible—David, you know, who, who are Abraham, whoever you want, Moses—they're all flawed. Right? This isn't a book of pretty pictures of, look at the heroes of the faith. Look at how perfect they are and bronzed and chiseled. That's not what this book is. God knows we learn most often through our mistakes. And so we also learn through other people's mistakes. And so that means if the heroes have to have a little egg on their face so that we can learn, God does that. Because there's one hero in this book, right? There's only one man in this book and in all of the history books across mankind's history who comes out of this world unscathed. He doesn't come out physically unscathed, but he comes out spiritually unscathed. Jesus Christ is the only one who has no egg on his face because he's the only one that we are told to emulate. He's the only one that we are told to follow. So if you're following, you guys know this, I, I hate Facebook theology, right? They've got the, if, if there's a giant in your life, it's because God sees a David in you. Shut it. God doesn't see a David in you, y'all. He does one better. God has put himself in you. And the Holy Spirit inside of you is way better. Guys, King David, if you met King David face to face, and you told him that cute little thing, David wouldn't blush. David wouldn't, oh, <laughs> shucks, guys. no he'd probably smack you, right? David was a warrior. He was like a, yeah. He'd slap you. He'd say, what are you doing, man? You've got better than I have. I didn't have the Holy Spirit like you have it. Walk in the Spirit. Don't walk in David. Don't follow my example. Follow his example. But that's what the Bible is all about. It shows us what life in the kingdom looks like. Like we've said over and over again, We cannot, we're going to get to a point where I'm just going to start saying it and y'all are going to finish it, right? We cannot live in God's kingdom man's way, right? Right? If we drive anything home, maybe this is, you know how everybody has their like word for 2023, like this is our word. Maybe this is our sentence as a church for 2023. We cannot live in God's kingdom man's way, and I think that's one of the things that I find so irksome to me about the way the church in the West is trying to do church is that we are trying to do church man's way. And so we do these business models and all that stuff. That's, that's, I've no beefs about it. I don't like that kind of culture. But if we're going to be about God's kingdom, we've got to do it God's way, right? Which means it, it doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from, from those business models and stuff. But it means we can't follow those things. Because when God advances his kingdom, he's going to do it his way. So how do we advance God's kingdom? Right? What does that look like? And thankfully for us, James shows us. And he shows us in three ways to start this off. We see clearly in our lives whether or not we are living in God's kingdom through these three things. In the book of James, there's more than just these three, but these are the three things James covers today. Favoritism, that's number one. seems a little strange that that's what James leads off with, but we'll get there. And then mercy, and then faith. Those are the three things that James is going to talk about in just chapter two that show us, are you living in God's kingdom, or are you living in man's kingdom? Because here's the thing, we all say we're living in God's kingdom, right? one of you is a you know, Christian, you got your gold star and you know, your Jesus bucks, I don't know. But you know, right? You're a Christian, yeah, we're living for God's kingdom. But James says, what's James say? So you say you believe, let's see it. Let's see whether you're actually living for his kingdom. So first up, we have favoritism. And favoritism is, for those of you who need a dictionary definition, this isn't a dictionary definition, it's my definition, favoritism is favoring someone over someone else, right? Playing favorites. At its root, and I want you to remember this because this is going to be a theme that we're going to see in all of these things, at its root, favoritism, when you show favoritism, it shows a complete lack of understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you play favorites, it shows that you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what's really interesting to me. In the gospel accounts, in the gospels, we see, I think it's in two different accounts, it might be in three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it could just be in two of those, I'm not real sure. But we see Jesus have this interaction with his disciples. It's so interesting. But his disciples, Jesus is in their teaching, and his disciples come and they say, Hey, Jesus, your mom and brothers and sisters are outside and they want to talk to you. And what's Jesus say? All right, guys, hold on just a minute. Let me step outside. And he doesn't say that, does he? What does Jesus do? Jesus levels the playing field. And this is hard for me because I love my family, right? Right? This is hard, and, and here, and this, but this is where the gospel goes, because family is a good thing, right? Y'all listen to me. Family is not an ultimate thing. We've got churches today, they will teach you, your marriage is an ultimate thing. If you don't have a strong marriage, you're not going to be able to be false. Look, yes, have a strong marriage. That's not a bad thing. It is not an ultimate thing. And if you lift that marriage above the gospel, that's an idol. You've messed it up. If you lift your family, if you lift your children above the gospel, you messed it up. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He who does the will of God, that is my mother and my brother and my sister. Church, the gospel levels the playing field. It takes all of your relationships and it levels the playing field. And it says you can play no favorites. You can't play favorites. Because what does the gospel say? The gospel says that I, Jeremy Allen Metzger, am a sinner wrecked with sin. That's where God found me absolutely nothing about me redeemable. I was a monster. And yet, God chose to love me. Right? That humbles your socks right off, doesn't it? If you ever had the inkling of thinking that you were above anyone else, (coughs) club right back down. Right? But here's the thing. The gospel doesn't end there, right? because it also says at the exact same time that you are a child of the Most High God. We talked about this in the Christmas sermon series, but there's no higher position than that, right? We get, we get caught up in these bad doctrines in the church, you know, mansions and crowns and jewels and all that stuff. Listen, y'all, you are a child of the Most High God. There isn't a step up from that. I'm just waiting for my promotion until I can be child A1. It it doesn't go any higher. I think lots of times we read the the, the parable of the the two sons, right, the prodigal son who runs away. We miss the, the, the biggest lesson from that that Jesus is teaching. Both sons say to their father, in essence, Dad, I don't want you. I want your stuff. The younger son's bold enough to just outright say, Dad, pay up. I don't want you anymore. Just give me my stuff and I'm taken off. Right? He goes away. He squanders it on loose living. And then he comes back and says, Dad, I screwed up. Then the older son gets mad. And we all think, oh, the older son, he's the good one. He sticks around, right? No. Because right afterwards, when the son gets back, what's the older son say? He says, Dad, I've served you my entire life. This son of yours goes and does all of this wild stuff as a complete dirt bag, and then you welcome him right back in and throw a feast for him? You've never given me anything. Both sons. You see it? Both sons. Dad, you never give me anything. And we're so quick because we don't want to be wrong, right? Well, that's not me. I've, I don't have that problem. I'm not worried about the fattened calf at all. How many times do we approach God like that? Right? God, what have you ever done for me? And when you say it like that, pastor, getting a little warm in here. But right? We approach God that way, and that's bad doctrine. That's bad theology. That's bad religion. Because what's the gospel say at its core? We approach God for God. And what's God's answer to the prodigal sons? Both of them. He says to the oldest son, you have always had me and everything I have is yours. Right? You have always had me. You are a child of the Most High God. There isn't a higher position. So the gospel does the incredible thing of lifting you up because you are a child of the Most High God. There is no higher that you can go. But also humbling you because of where we came from, right? And we live in this strange in-between space of being equally sinner, equally justified, Martin Luther's simul et justice, or simul peccator et justice. That's what Martin Luther's thing was. It was in Latin, but it means you're simultaneously a sinner and just at the exact same time. And, and that there's, there's that war, but, but that humbles us so that we cannot play favorites. Do you see it? Because you cannot look down on somebody when you know where God has pulled you out from. But at the same time, nobody can look down on you because you know who you are and whose you are, right? And so we have this incredible, it's not balance, but this incredible status that the gospel gives us. But we cannot walk around judging other people, right? If that's how God holds us, then we can't walk around playing favorites with other people. God has no favorites, and so we can't have favorites. He doesn't play favorites, so we can't play favorites. And why? Thankfully, that's what James tells us. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism for if a man comes into your assembly with gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man you stand over there and sit down by my footstool have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives we cannot live in god's kingdom man's way we cannot And in man's kingdom, we show preferential treatment to those who have power and influence. Don't we? Because ultimately in man's kingdom, I'm not going to throw this out there, it's going to sound really harsh, but it's not quite that harsh. We use people, don't we? Now, when I say we use people, we get these you conjure up these images of these powerful and evil CEOs and sweatshops and you know, them using people. Yes, that's using people, but I'm not even talking about that drastic. I'm talking about when you look at your circle of friends, if you're doing it man's way, almost all of those friendships started as a way for you to use or to jockey for some type of position. It's very rare that we have friendships that are bonded that don't, aren't give-and-take relationships, right? where they're, they're giving you something, and as long as they're giving you something, yeah, I'm around for the relationship, but then when they stop giving it to you, well, I'm out, right? Because in man's kingdom, we use people, and it's not, it's not always a bad thing, right? You know, if I know Joe, and he works at Pizza Hut, yeah, man, I'm gonna use Joe's discount so I can get some cheaper pizza, right? Joe doesn't mind, because I work at the gospel house, and I give him free communion I don't really have anything I can pay back Joe with but but it's not necessarily a bad thing it's not always evil you know I'm not talking about these awful evil situations but when we look at man's relationship these relationships are constantly jockeying and so when you look at the people that you're with when you look at your friend groups are you friends with them and and look if you've been friends with them for a long time it's possible that you've really developed deep friendships with these people but when it started, did it start out of a level of personal favoritism? Or did it start out of gospel-centered relationship, with gospel-centered motives? More often than not, manly relationship, I don't mean manly, I mean like fleshly relationships, start with that air of personal favoritism. This, these people give me Status. These people look the way I want to look. These people have the things I want to have. These people share the same values. And and those aren't necessarily bad things. But when we let those things cloud our judgment in how we treat people, when we start showing favoritism, that's not how God does it. And as we move forward in the gospel, now that we are in Christ, we cannot form relationships that way anymore. Our relationships must be formed centered on the gospel, based on the gospel, driven by the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week, but James doubles down on it in the next part. Talked about how God has this upside-down kingdom, and James dives into it again. Says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? This upside-down kingdom, typically of God's, looks like this. You have, on the top, the least of these, right? Because that's who Jesus says is greatest in the kingdom of God, the least of these, But when we look at man's kingdom, where are those people? On the bottom, right? And then on the top of man's kingdom are the powerful, the prestigious, the ones that we go to because, man, they got all the strings that they can pull and they they know everybody and they're so well connected. But they're on the bottom of God's kingdom because they're not interested in doing things God's way. And you see this, right? When you look through the Gospels, who does Jesus go to? Well, he goes to the powerful and the ones who can give him a great name and put his face on posters. And No, right? What's he constantly being accused of? Oh, that's your teacher hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. So the lowest of the low, right? That's who Jesus constantly surrounded himself with. Because those are the people who are most receptive to the gospel right? The problem with the rich and powerful is that they don't see a need for a savior. But those who know they're broken, they know they need a savior. And so the gospel can bear fruit in their lives. But we got to be careful here. We can start to twist this to where we get into a teaching, you know, that the rich and power and money, that it's all evil and we got to get rid of it and sell all our possessions and become poor and that's how we advance the gospel, but we can't do that either. We also can't balance this man's way. Now, James is being very heavy on one side of this. That's most likely because the people whom James is writing to, those people, are, are their error is on that one side, right? But God's word is very balanced on this. We actually talked about this, uh, the sermon series before our Christmas sermon series. This is a big problem that we have today with critical race theory. Critical race theory is a big thing. But listen to God's word because God's word is very even on this. I don't want to say balance because balance isn't what we're looking for, but it's truth. And look at what the truth says in Exodus 23, 1-3. God says you shall not bear a false report do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness you shall not follow the masses in doing evil nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice nor shall you be partial in a uh, i'm sorry to a poor man in his disputes Got it Justice means Just because someone is poor, you do not give him the benefit of the doubt. Just because someone is not in a position of power does not mean he's telling the truth. That's our problem with critical race theory. Critical race theory, listen, it's looking to do a good thing. Critical race theory wants to do the right thing. It wants to level the playing field. It does it horribly. Because it levels the playing field by pulling down the powerful and the strong and the rich and the, the, the influential. It pulls them down by any means necessary. And if it takes injustice to pour them de- to pull them down, then, then injustice it is. But doggone it, we're going to level the playing field. That's not the gospel. God also says this in Leviticus 19.15. He says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Do you see that? What does it mean? We are to love, we are to judge our neighbor fairly. Right? Sometimes we try to balance these scales man's way. And when we do, when we balance God's scales man's way, it is always a disaster. And when you look around at the chaos being caused right now by trying to balance injustice, by adding more injustice to it, it's a disaster, right? It's not going well. So how do we do it? And the answer is, we don't add balance. We add the gospel, The Bible is never about balance. It's always about the truth. And God's truth is found in the gospel. So what does the gospel say, especially in regards to favoritism? James tells us, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Isn't that peculiar? There are false doctrines out there that want us to make a distinction between Old and New Testament. There is a distinction between Old and New Testament. That's not a bad thing. But I have heard very, very prominent pastors of very, very large churches who write books and have podcasts say, Christian, you need to move on from the Old Testament. Run. If your pastor is saying that, run. Because Christian Jesus didn't move on from the Old Testament. And if you proclaim to follow him, then you better pay attention to what's going on in the Old Testament. Because this is the Old Testament. And it is the gospel. The gospel is in the Old Testament, right? One of the most powerful things you can do. This is one of the most powerful things I ever did. I went through my Bible. I took a red pen. And I went through my Bible and I underlined any passage in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, that had to do with the gospel. Y'all, do you know how much red there is in the Old Testament? Everywhere. I mean, you, you can barely get through a page without something pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of it points to Jesus. And there is so much power in learning how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And if you, if you want a study that's going to blow you away, I mean, the spiritual growth I had the year that I did that was unbelievable. I would highly suggest going through, just go buy a cheap red Bic pen and underline every passage in the Old Testament that has to do with Jesus, that points you to Jesus. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. But we cannot move away from the Old Testament because the fact of the matter is we don't like the Old Testament because the Old Testament is all, it's the law and it's the stuffy stuff and that's the stuff we got to obey, you know. New Testament is free and fun and dancing with Jesus, right? That's, that's the image that we get. But it's not, The law says to love your neighbor as yourself. Guess who else said that? Jesus. In fact, he said it was the second greatest commandment, right? Right behind, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And guess who else says that that's the second greatest commandment? The Holy Spirit. And if you are walking by the Spirit, guess what He's going to lead you to do? To love your neighbor as yourself. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to not love your neighbor as yourself. So if you are not loving your neighbor as yourself, who's holding on to the wheel? It's what James is saying, right? If you are loving your neighbor as yourself, you're walking in the Spirit. You're walking in the gospel. You know, this is what we tell our kids all the time, right? Jubilee smacks Elam while they're playing downstairs. He comes upstairs, and since Elam's bigger than her, she usually slaps him absolutely as hard as she can. He can't do that to her. He would be in big trouble. But she is too. But we ask him, Juby, would you like Elam to smack you as hard as he can? No. Then why do you feel like you can smack him as hard as you can? I don't know. Are you loving him as you, love, as you want others to love you? No. Right? It's the greatest commandment because you can punish your kids with it all the time. That's not why it's the greatest commandment. But do you see, though, how God's perfect word, because if I am loving others the way I want to be loved, I'm not showing partiality, right? Because whether this person has $15 billion is Jeff Bezos from Amazon is sitting right over here or, you know, I, some, somebody else who's got absolutely not a penny to their name over on this side and neither of them gets preferential treatment. Not because I say, well, Jeff Bezos, you have all this money. You just go do whatever you want. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to show everybody how we love the poor here. <laughs> yes, right. That's wrong. Not Right. Because we can be just as prideful on that end, right? But that's not right. But they come in and I love them both equally because I treat them both not as if they have a bunch of money, not as if they have a bunch of power and pull and prestige and oh man, they could give us a TV deal for the gospel house and I could be one of those televangelists who ha- pat- sells the hankies that with my sweat on it and it heals people and we'd be making so much money, right? Right? But I love them the same because I treat them the way that Jesus treated me, the way that I want to be treated. God's law, God's perfect law is love. Love others the way God has loved you, love others the way you want to be loved. Church, we have to be a church that loves the unlovely, that loves the unlovable, that runs after those people, that doesn't seek people who are easy to get along with, that doesn't seek people who have power and pull to get us ahead, but that seeks people. Actually, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, it's a story about David, but David is on the run from Saul. King Saul's trying to kill him. And he's hiding in this cave. They call it the cave of Agilom. And in that cave, he starts attracting all of these misfits. They're like the, the fighters and the warriors from these towns and clans and all this stuff that, like, nobody wants. And they all just start showing up at this cave. And David's like, okay, yeah, sure, you can hang out with me. I'm on the run. Might as well be misfits together, right? And they start gathering, but what is so cool that a lot of people don't realize is that after that, we're told that David starts going on these raids and like raiding all these people, and and we're told about these mighty men of David, right? these men of valor and all this stuff. Those are the people who came to him while he was in the cave, right? Over and over in Scripture, God gathers people in this cave of Adullam. And y'all, I want to be a cave of Adullam. I want to be a church that misfits and people who don't fit in and everybody shows up and we love them all the same because we treat people the way we want to be treated. Because we love people the way God loves them. Not people that run away from hard people to love. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean, you know, a lot of times people will say this stuff and it's like, so let's go do outreach to the poor communities. It's not what I'm talking about. I've met tons of rich people who are way harder to love than poor people, right? Can I get an amen? But those are the people that we've got to run after. The people who feel like they are so far from God that there is no possible way he could ever forgive them. That there's no possible way he could ever take them back. Our God, the God of the universe... Is a God who is absolutely broken when any of his children run away and he can't pull them back in. He wants you that desperately. Those are the kind of people that we want here, church. Those are the kind of people that we have to run after. So listen, y'all, if you know somebody, and I guarantee you all know somebody, I just told that story and somebody popped in your head that's how Jesus works. Get them here. Tell them that there is a church where they're going to be loved. And doggone it, we got a church that loves people, right? We've got a church that loves on people. You all love people so well here. And so we've got to run after these people. Uh, I just read that. Sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> lost my place. Got caught up there. All of this not showing favoritism, loving others well, all of it is a thousand times easier to do if you have a heart filled with mercy. As long as your heart is full of judgment, you will never love people well. You can't. It's absolutely impossible. Because if we fail to show others an abundance of mercy, here's your theme coming up again, When we refuse to show others mercy, just like favoritism, that shows in us a complete lack of understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Because at the center of the gospel is mercy. There's this interesting parable that Jesus gives. We talked about this last week, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, pairs his teachings very closely with those of Jesus. Always a good idea to pair your teachings close with Jesus. But, but there's so many times you can bounce back to, to the teachings of Jesus and see James clearly teaching off of these things. But this is one of them. Because Jesus gives this parable in Luke 7. But he talks about this parable of two debtors. He's at this dinner party of the Pharisee Simon, and there's this woman who's a prostitute sitting at his, at his feet. And she's you know, wetting Jesus' feet with her t- tears and wiping them down with her hair. And Simon, you know, kind of jokes with his friends and says, (laughs) if this guy were really a prophet, he'd know what this woman does for a living, and there's no way he'd let her be touching her like this. And Jesus says, Simon, can I ask you a question? And Simon says, of course, teacher, fire away. He says, there were two men. I'll read it here because I don't remember exactly. Moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of the men will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. He then goes on to tell Simon, I came in to your house and you didn't do anything for me, Simon. But this woman has sat at my feet and hasn't stopped kissing them she hasn't she's been wetting them with her tears she's been drying them with her hair it says he who has been forgiven much loves much but he who has been forgiven little loves little that's not because the woman was a greater sinner than simon it's because the woman saw how desperately she needed jesus how much she had been forgiven And Simon refused to see it. Simon showed no mercy because he couldn't see the mercy that he had been given. But Jesus showed this woman mercy and told her, your sins have been forgiven you. Go and sin no more. If you don't realize the mercy that God has extended to you, you'll never be able to show mercy to others. So the question is, do we really understand the mercy that God has shown us? Or are we like the Pharisee Simon, where we think we're pretty good people? God's maybe forgiven me like 10%, you know. James shows us how indebted we are to God. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment. I really like that Greek there in verse 13, that mercy triumphs over judgment. If you read the Greek, the Greek literally says mercy boasts against judgment. So it's not just that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy talks a little trash too, right? It boasts over judgment. Like that's how confident mercy is over judgment. But look at what James is saying here. This is the same thing that Jesus showed us in his parable on the subject. The law is a tricky thing. You can't just obey part of it, right? The law is an all or nothing deal. That's what James is saying, right? I walk around with my gold star like, I've never cheated on my wife. Doing good. Well, yeah, Jeremy, but you just killed somebody the other day. Well, yeah, but one out of two ain't bad, right? I mean, there's ten commandments. I've kept nine of them. Ninety percent's passing on a test, Right? That's how Jesus, It's not how it works, right? If we break it down like legalism, then yeah, that's how it works. Well, I obey most of the laws. I covet some things, you know, but that's, that's kind of like a, that's barely a commandment. I'm 90%, that's good. Baseball, man, I'd be pfft, real good. I can get all the way down to 30 before I get in trouble in baseball, right? But when we look at it that way, that's what it is. But listen, if the law is what we're saying it is here, if the law is telling you what walking in God's kingdom looks like, then it's not 90%, is it? It's 100 or you're not walking in God's kingdom. There's this really interesting passage. We talked about this in the very beginning uh, it, last week, but how a lot of people pit James and Galatians against each other, Right? They say that Galatians is teaching like this real free grace and you know all this stuff and James is like legalism and they're oh they contradict each other. They don't not at all actually and this is one passage that's very interesting that parallels here but in Galatians 5 most people know Galatians 5 because it talks about the fruit of the spirit right? What almost everybody in the world misses, maybe not in the world, in the English-speaking church misses, because English translations don't show us this. But in Galatians 5, it tells us the fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, right? So it tells us that. The problem is, in the Greek, there is a difference for singular fruit and plural fruit. We don't have that in English, because when we talk about fruit, like if I hand you a fruit basket with a bunch of different fruit in it, it's still just a fruit basket, right? It's just a bunch of fruit, but it's all a bunch of different fruits. The problem is, in Greek, it differentiates. And when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he uses the singular Greek, which means, the problem being, we have all these churches that do these sermon series. I get it. It's nice. It breaks up real nicely. You do one of the fruits of the Spirit every week, right? Because it breaks up nicely. So today's fruit of the Spirit is joy. Tomorrow's fruit of the Spirit is patience. The next fruit of the Spirit is, and we go on down the line, right? That's not what Paul's teaching. Paul is teaching the exact same thing that James is teaching here. The singular fruit of the Spirit contains all of these characteristics. If you don't have patience, you don't have the fruit of the Spirit see why nobody teaches it? <laughs> That's not popular, right? Well, dang, man. What's well, super depressing, if you want to get really crushed, before that, he talks about the works of the flesh. Are you, are you getting where this is going? Y'all, it is impossible to keep the law of God. It is impossible to display the fruit of the Spirit in your life and you want to know why so many people who are legalistic are absolutely depressed out of their minds because they found out dog gone it this is hard right come on now have any of you tried to do the right thing for an extended period of time dieting is always a real easy analogy to make right you go on a diet and it's like only when you're on the diet do you really want chocolate cake. I don't ever want chocolate cake. But when I'm on the diet, I want chocolate cake. Right? Because all of a sudden you can't have it. If you've ever tried to do the right thing, really tried to for a long period of time do the right thing in your strength, it crushes you. Doesn't it? It does so intentionally. God is trying to crush you. That doesn't sound nice. Oh, but it's the nicest thing he could ever do for you. Because if God crushes my self-will, it teaches me to be dependent upon him. And listen y'all, I cannot abide by the law. I cannot obey the law unless I am walking by the Holy Spirit. And when I am walking by the Holy Spirit, y'all, he's not gonna lead you into anything against the law, right? You You don't even have to know what the law is. You can't recite the Ten Commandments? It doesn't matter. Walk by the Spirit. Look, is it good to be able to recite the Ten Commandments? Sure. It's good to memorize scripture. It's good to have God's word hidden in your heart. Is it necessary? Not if you're walking by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never lead you any into anything contrary to the law do you see why it is so vital that we christians walk in the power that god has given to us do you seek i'm sorry do you see why it's so stupid when we try to do anything else why in the world when we have the power of god at our disposal living inside of us are we trying to do it our way Why do we think, why do I think Jeremy can lead better, lead me better, lead my life better than God can? See, the problem here is that we all know the gospel. Know the gospel. We say we know it, right? Jesus Christ died on a cross to cover our sins, and I owe him a debt that I can never repay, right? The old man's gone, the new has come, but the problem is we put it in the past. Guys, the gospel's not in the past because I think one of the things that we miss in the gospel, I don't know if it's untaught or unlived, but Christians don't live this truth nearly enough. The gospel doesn't end that your sins have been forgiven, that your debt is no more. The gospel ends, it doesn't end, it continues in, God has given you the Holy Spirit living inside of you so that you don't go back into debt. Because the problem that we have with Christians today is that we've been forgiven, my debt is erased. Except I'm gonna go back into debt tomorrow because I really like doing this sin and I'm gonna keep doing it because Jesus is gonna forgive me. Come on now, right? My debt's forgiven, but I keep going deeper into more debt. And I keep running back to the cross, and my debt's forgiven, but then I go back into debt the next day. And then back, do you see the back and forth? You wonder why you're exhausted, Christian? Because you keep going back and forth between debt and the cross. Doggone it, I wish God gave me a way that I could stop sinning. Oh, my child, but he has and this is what is not taught in the church today. Because we act as if sin is inevitable, don't we? We're going to screw it up. We're going to mess up. And so we read this sneaky passage in 1 John, right? 1 John 2.1, it says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. If anyone sins, not when I've taught on this before we've got to get this in our hearts ladies and gentlemen if you walk by the Holy Spirit you will not sin do you want to stop sinning you can answer yes thank you someone for being honest I don't want to sin anymore then stop doing it your way. Walk by the Spirit. God has given you the power to live a sin-free life. And then, if you sin, He's given us an advocate in Jesus Christ who will forgive us of our sins. But that's an if. Because if I can learn how to pray, this is a Van Robison favorite, not my will, Not my will. It's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Vance says it's the most powerful prayer in the Bible because it's the prayer that got Jesus on the cross. If I pray not my will and I let the Holy Spirit take over, guys, He will not lead you into sin. He is a good shepherd. He keeps you out of all of that trouble. And then you don't have to keep running back and forth. But do you know the other thing? You have been forgiven of a debt that you can never repay. We know that in the gospel. But the only reason you can even maintain a life without going back into debt is because the very power of God is working inside of you. How in the world are you going to cast judgment on anyone else? Right? If it's not even your power that's keeping you on the straight and narrow... I can't look at somebody else and be like, struggling with pornography, are you? (laughs) That's so beneath me. I can't. Because it's not even by my own power that I don't struggle with the same thing. It's the Holy Spirit keeping me on the straight and narrow. Right? And so we are free from judging other people. We are free to extend mercy We aren't above anyone, right? No partiality, no judgment, just the gospel and mercy. We are not above unbelievers. We are not above those who believe in bad doctrine. We aren't above those who do really goofy stuff in the name of the Holy Spirit. We aren't above those who are legalistic, those who believe in too much cheap grace. We aren't above those who don't walk out what they say they believe. You know, my father-in-law always used to tell me I would, I would go to him and I'd complain about like, somebody else who was being terrible as a Christian. You know, Not judgy or anything, but I'd always be like, oh, so-and-so, you know, complain about him and all this stuff. And he always, he always brought me back down to earth. But this is what he would always say to me. I always wanted him to say, like, yeah, he's terrible. Yeah, you should never talk to him again. He never said that. What he always said was, sounds to me like they haven't been discipled. Meaning, Jeremy, stop being a knucklehead and show them the truth. I think a lot of times, me, I get so busy judging people that I don't show them the truth. Right? How many times, church, are we so busy judging the world that we forget to show them the truth? Because what did the Holy Spirit do with us? Did he come in and judge us? And then we said, oh yeah, yeah, I love being judged. He came in and he showed us the truth, right? He showed us how much God loves us. And in response to that love, we turned to him. In response to that love, we learned to pray, not my will, but yours be done. We disciple people. We show people how to walk by the Spirit. How to live a life of not my will. And ultimately, we show people our faith. And we cannot just talk about it. We have to do it. Uh, Actually, this week on Tuesday... Uh, I have, I, I, some of you know this about me, but I do, I build altars on my phone. I know it sounds like a weird thing. You're like, Ooh, how do you do that? Uh, really, an altar in the Old Testament is just any way of remembering. So in the Old Testament, they would build little like mounds of stone or whatever, and they called them altars, but it's just a way of remembering that the Lord spoke to you. So I built an altar uh, on, on Tuesday coming up this week, January 10th, 2012, was when I built this altar, and on that day, I told God, God, I am done playing. I am going all in from this day forward. I am your man, and I am not turning around. I used to be a teacher back then. I'm 100% convinced that the only reason I am here today is because on that day, I built an altar to the Lord. And I said, God, I am yours from now on. But there's a reason that I did that. At that time, I had a bouncing baby boy named Elam Nathaniel and he was yay tall, very, very little. Wasn't even a year old yet, but I knew, I knew that if I wanted Elam to grow up and be a Christian, that he would have to see his father walking out his faith. That if I just talked about it, yeah, Elam, David, he slayed Goliath, and you know, the Holy Spirit's in you, and you can slay giants too, and, but if I just talked about it, and then lived a normal life and, and didn't act on any of the faith things that God had put in my heart, Elam would never buy it. I knew I had to do it if I was going to say it, that that was the only way that my son would grow up to be a man after God's heart, a man who believed, he, who could say, like, man, I see my dad running after a strong God. I believe in that strong God. And so that's what I did. I can't tell you that I have been 100% God's man since then. I've had Jeremy moments where I creep in. But every day, I seek to be God's man. Every day, I seek to pray more and more, not my will, but yours be done. And every single day, God shows me more areas (laughs) that I need to give up. And they're hard to let go of, aren't they? Because we take possession of these things, and we want to hold them. And when God says, Jeremy, let go, I don't like it. It's like, but God, I like this thing. And if you take it, you might mess it up. It sounds silly when I say it out loud, doesn't it? But that's how we get. James gives us an awesome illustration of what faith in God's kingdom looks like. I'm going to read the whole section, and then we'll jump back and, and hit on a few key points. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe also believe and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, I'm sorry, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? is useless? James really doesn't pull any punches, does he? He's just going at it. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was being fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We cannot just talk about it. We have to do it. We have to be willing to put our money where our mouth is, right? I actually really like uh, this this passage right here. James is giving such a good illustration of, of, of what this, this faith looks like, but that, that Hebrew word, or the, I'm sorry, the Greek word that is used for spirit, uh, it's, it, it means breath, when like the literal translation of it is, is breath. And it, it derives from both the Hebrew and the Greek words for breath. They derive from when God breathes life, it gives us this spirit, this, this you know, spiritual being. But when certain Greek attachments are added, then it becomes, can become the Holy Spirit. Then it's God's breath. But when they aren't attached, it's just our breath. But I love that illustration that James gives us here. Because he says, what's he say? He says, the body without breath is dead. Right? Have any of you ever tried to hold your breath for a really, 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 really long time? If you hold it long enough, your body won't be alive anymore. Right? If you stop breathing, you die. Where there is no breath, there is no life. Works is the breath of faith. That's what James is showing us here. How many of you are sitting out there thinking about your breathing pattern right now? Take a deep breath in. Breath out. that would get tedious, right? You don't even think about it. It's such a natural part. It's just—it's a byproduct of what you do, right? That's what works are to faith. If you say you believe, you're not sitting there thinking about breathing it, right? You just do it. So if you're not doing it, then we've got to trace back what's going on here. If the works aren't there, then we trace back and say, maybe the faith is broken, right? Because if somebody in here were to stop breathing, we would have to take action pretty quickly, wouldn't we? Because there's something broken, and if it's not fixed, it's going to die. If you say you have faith, But there are no works accompanied with that faith. We've got to trace it back because at the very least, you have a dying faith if it's not dead already. Works are the breath of faith. James gives us an example earlier. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. We'll revisit an old favorite quote of ours here at the Gospel House. A.W. Tozer, Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. I've seen it in too many Christian circles where somebody comes up and says, oh, I, I, oh, man, I don't, have, I don't have any money to get through the week. I need gas. I, you know, I can't get to my appointment. I go, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll be praying for you. And then we go out and spend $600 at TJ Maxx on clothes that are going to sit in our closet with the tags on them for three years. We'll end up taking to Goodwill because oh, they just don't fit anymore. Right? Don't offer to pray for somebody if you have the means to do something and refuse to do it. The fact of the matter is, it's easier to just say, well, I'll pray for you, right? It's easier to go to a worship night. It's easier to go to a prayer rally, to come to church, to whatever it is, than it is to actually do something about it. I, some of you know this story, I think I've told a few of you before, but this, this, I still look back at this and consider this my greatest failure as a Christian. I was out, I just, marathon training. I used to run marathons. No more. But I used to run marathons, and I was out marathon training, and I was actually coming home from a, a fairly long run, and I was right by Bowling Green High School. um, I will never forget it. I I could, if I was good at drawing, I could draw you a picture of this man's face. I was running, and and like far away, like it had to have been spiritual, like the Holy Spirit giving me the ability, because like he was far away. And I was running, and I could see this man walking towards me. And it looked like somebody just killed his dog. I mean, he was like beyond done, like just absolutely crushed. And God told me so clearly, stop and talk to him. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to. And I had, I had good reasons, right? It's like four in the morning, and so he's probably going to be worried I'm going like to jump him. I was making really good time for my marathon training. It was going to be like a new PR, so I was good on that. There's every excuse in the book. And so, you know, I said, all right, God, if I get up to this intersection and there's a red car that comes by, I'll I'll stop and talk to him and I'll pray for him, so I get up to the intersection. No red car, and so I run, run right past the guy, give a little wave, keep going, start feeling bad about it. Like, oh dang it, did I miss one? All right, God, if there's a red car coming down the road, I'll turn around and I'll go back because that'd be way better running up and approaching someone in the dark from behind, as opposed to the front. Right? No red car. Dodged a bullet, man. Didn't have to do that one. Got all the way home. The entire way home could not shake that I had royally screwed up. And I got home and just felt awful. It was like, God, what what? Like I asked for a sign and he cut me off so fast. God's pretty blunt with me. I think it's because I'm pretty blunt, so he's pretty blunt back. And he said, Jeremy, I didn't ask you to ask for a sign. I asked you to stop and talk to him. I messed up. God is good. God had a plan, has a plan for that man. And so I'm certain that his plan was acted out. But, guys, I goofed that up bad because it was easier for me just to pray about it. That's dead faith, y'all. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So if we're going off of this, what kind of faith believes but doesn't obey? Demon faith, right? That's dead faith, y'all. So what kind of faith believes and obeys? Only faith in the kingdom of God. So you say you believe. Demons believe, but they don't obey. What's our excuse? If you say you believe, then be a doer of the word. If you say you believe, then walk out a life in the kingdom of God and both of these things require complete obedience and surrender to the Holy Spirit. So Gospel House, I have a question for you. Do you believe God? If you do, then let's start living in His kingdom, His way. Right? Let's give the Holy Spirit 100% access. And let's live in God's kingdom, not man's way, but let's live in God's kingdom, God's way. Let's pray. God... We want to be your men and women here at the Gospel House. We want to be your church. But God, we recognize that takes the enormous task of dying to ourselves and letting you have complete control. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would drive the truth of the Gospel down into our hearts that you would show us how loved and accepted we are in Jesus Christ, that you would show us how deeply we have been forgiven of our past transgressions, that there is nothing, that there is no one too far to be saved, that there is no mistake we have made in our past, no amount of running we could ever do to outrun your love. Holy Spirit, show us the gospel. And then live it out in us every day as we surrender to you. Help us, God, to be as perfectly obedient to you as Jesus was while he walked this earth. Have your way in us, Holy Spirit. Have your way in this church. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house slash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.